Hello, data people. Welcome to another episode of Data Minds. My name is Jared Polivka, and in this episode, I have the privilege and honor to interview Eli Bressert, the head of the Gamma team at Netflix. Eli is awesome. He is so kind and down to earth, and I greatly appreciate him taking his time out of a very, very busy schedule to share his knowledge and wisdom with us. Um, I met Eli about a year and a half ago at the machine learning conference here in San Francisco. He, at the time, he was still working for Stitch Fix. Eli has a fascinating career arc in that he went from academia and being a whiz kid in many ways, from working on the Chandra Space Telescope and working on his PhD to writing a book for O'Reilly on NumPy and SciPy while getting his PhD, to getting hooked on startups, deciding he had to go into industry, and going through the Insight Data Science program, to working at Jawbone, to working at Stitch Fix, and heading up their R&D team, and then going on to Netflix. Eli is super passionate, he's a hard worker, and there's a lot in this interview that I think you'll take with you. There are lessons in this interview for the aspiring data scientists, for the data scientists who want to upgrade their skills and careers, and then also for the data managers in the audience. I think this is this interview can help so many different types of people. You'll learn a lot from Eli. Enjoy it. Without any further ado, I give you Eli Bressert, head of the Gamma team at Netflix. Enjoy. Well, good to see you. Um, let's. I guess let's jump in. Let's do it. I'm ready. So in doing these interviews, everybody has a different path to data science. And like when I interviewed Eric Colson, his path is very different than Hillary Mason's, very different than Jonathan Morrow's. Um, mm -hmm. Like my friend Darren Rieger, who's an instructor at a uh, data science boot camp in San Francisco, he came from academia. What was your, and, and you have a similar background coming from academia, what was your transition from academia to the tech and startup world and like how did you know how did you know that you wanted to go into data science and and make that transition can you tell me that story yeah sure um well so i kind of had a hunch that i wanted to that there was a possibility that i wanted to go down the tech industry path when i was doing my phd even before i started my phd i was already writing a lot of python libraries uh two of them that are pretty well known in python uh for astronomy and um really enjoyed the whole process of being able to like you know, make something concrete so quickly and just kind of seeing like how useful and the utility and the impact that it has. And that kind of carried on through when I did my when I was doing my PhD. Um, I was approached by O'Reilly to say, hey, would you like to write a book on NumPy and SciPy? And I was thinking to myself, like, man, this would kind of happen at the same time I'm doing my PhD thesis. Kind of nuts, but let's do it. <laughs> and I was doing both the PhD thesis and writing the book. And the community of people that I was like interacting with and uh you know for writing the book was exciting like the people were just like supercharged and people were curious got lots of feedback and you know with the thesis writing as well but it's much more of you're your own person and you kind of like are this man that who's standing on like the you know the shoulders of giants to make mm -hmm. things happen whereas in the tech field it's more like people are just working together to make something amazing right and so even though the book says it's just me as an author it's very much a co-partnership between me and the editors, the publishers. Uh, it was very much of a joint effort, and I loved that experience. Um, and then there was another part. So that was kind of like the first part. And, I was, and, I, and one of the reasons why I wrote that book was, you know, one, I love Python. And I think SciPy and NumPy are unsung heroes in many ways. And then I wanted to be able to put my feet deep into it. Like I was not the all 
the all-knowing on that topic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of forced me to really get deeper into it, which is a great opportunity. And the other with that, like, I was thinking to myself, like, okay, maybe I should have a bargaining chip that if things don't work out in the shiny world of academia, then I can at least go to another industry that I would love. And it panned out really well. So then I moved to Australia uh, for my fellowship uh, at a position, which is a great fellowship, can potentially lead to a tenure track position. And I'd say pretty high confidence on that. Um, I was enjoying what I was doing, but then I got wrapped in two projects that really started to kind of make me, you know, really start looking around. One was um, I ended up uh, leading up, or coming up with an idea for an, an all-sky observatory project. And it required Raspberry Pis, it required like chips and so forth. The whole process of thinking of it as a product and making it a reality with a large team of people was just so exciting. I love that, that process of building and, you know, of making something that could forever change the world of astronomy. And then at the same time, I was consulting a startup called Authoria. They're basically like LaTeX writing for academics on a web platform. And I was involved with them in a pretty early state where they just wanted someone as an advisor, as a scientist, and as, you know, kind of like a Python data scientist person to help out. Sure. And I love the energy. It was, I don't know how to describe it. It was beautiful. It was exciting. It was like, you know, the, the sky was the ceiling. It was even beyond the sky. It was space was the ceiling. Uh, there was no ceiling. And it's a, it's a very free domain. Like, whatever works is what we're going to adopt. That's kind of the attitude. They don't care how it works, or they do care how it works, but they don't care, like, you know, where it came from. It's just like, let's make this thing work, right? So the, the speed, the agility, the excitement, um, the passion is incredible. So um, that, was your, uh, that was your gateway drug. That was my gateway drug. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. At that point, I started looking around, um, and then I found out about the Insight Data Science Program. And honestly, I was very much like, not sure if I wanted to do it because one, you know, living in Australia was amazing. Um, I was living in surfer's paradise, you know, on Avalon Beach and, you know, living kind of a a great, you know, living like really enjoying a great field of astronomy as well, doing great research. But then there was this just this amazing opportunity where Insight Data Science said, hey, we'd love to have you. And I thought about it for about a week and I said, I'll do it. That's amazing. How did you find out about the program? I, I was just talking with um, the founders the other day. We might be doing a podcast interview um, in the next two to three weeks. I'm curious. With Jake Clem? Yeah, with Jake and with um, yeah. with David and the rest of the team. Um, you know, it's funny. With it was, so it was this was when Insight was still a very small program. Like mm-hmm. now, it's a much much bigger org and a lot more uh, data scientists going through it. Um, I think this is maybe the third session ever for insight or the fourth one i can't remember what it was the third or fourth and i was in a long phone discussion with with him just saying like you know what's the risks you know because i wanted to make sure like you know insight wasn't well known at that point and he said let me connect you with someone that um i know fairly well that who just just accepted a role of facebook and he's also coming from out of country and you guys can kind of sync up and i chatted with him and he really helped me kind of get perspective on the challenges that he was facing which were very similar to mine hmm. And it convinced me that this was the right choice. He says it's a legit program, great people to meet, and they make it really easy for you to, you know, go from academia to, to data science. You know, the big thing for me that I wanted to do in, in terms of data science was, well, not data science, but in terms of the insight program was that it's not really about, you know, teaching people to be a data, uh, to, to be more technical. It's really helping people kind of convert their skill sets hmm. of going from an academic to a data scientist. Like, you know, thinking more about product thinking more about like, what is the PM thinking about? What is the executive thinking about? And they don't care about all these fancy, shiny tools. They really care about the output. 
right? And is it, you know, can they do it to really improve their product? So it's really about, you know, changing the mindset. And then the other part is, you know, despite the fact that I wrote a book, I would not be exposed to 30, 40 high tech companies in Silicon Valley um, with that kind of level of intimacy that you can get through insight. And I was like, that's a great win-win situation. So I was like, this is definitely the best way forward. Absolutely. And and what was your next move after Insight? Is that when you went to Stitch Fix and joined the uh, the OG six-person team with Colson? Um, no, actually, I first joined Jawbone. Oh, okay. Nice. So Stitch Fix was not a partner with Insight at that point. Gotcha. Um, Stitch Fix later on became a partner. But basically, I, I just fell in love with the vision that Monica Rogatti had for data at Jawbone. Um, and I was like, this is definitely the, the path forward. And it was actually my first choice company as mm. well. Like, this is where I want to go. Right. Um, so I ended up going there, which was great. But while I was there, uh, Eric Colson, he's a very dangerous recruiter. <laughs> he is dangerous. Um, yeah, he is very dangerous. He, um, he asked me if I wanted to give a talk at, um, at this company called Stitch Fix. I'm like, what's Stitch Fix? So I started looking it up. And then my wife's like, oh, Stitch Fix. She goes, I've been meaning to try that out. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, interesting. I was like, what, did, what do people have to say? She goes, well, they also, it was like a really nice product. Like you get really, you know, nice clothing sent to you, personalized. Mm. I'm like, okay, so at least at, you know, product facing, it's a good experience for people. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll give, it, I'll give a talk there. And, and then Eric said, well, why don't we meet for some coffee first? You know, this is me in my masking days, not, going, not knowing what's going on. Right. I had a hunch that he was going to try and recruit me, but I didn't really think it was like, oh, come on. I've only been at like at, at Jawbone for five months. And then Eric and I just started talking and he asked if I was interested. I was actually on the fence for a while. Um, I said, you know, I'm really happy where I am at Jawbone for a while. You know, it's, I'm not quite ready to move. It's only been five months. Like I should take it slow. Yeah. Um, and then Eric and I started talking a little bit later on just to kind of like follow up and I told Eric that I, I had this vision that, you know, we should make a uh, research data science team, um, like an R&D division team at Stitch Fix, uh, to really kind of propel the latest and greatest technologies, you know, really like applied R&D and not like, you know, high in the sky R&D. Mm-hmm. And we discussed it for a while and we said, you know what, this would be a great opportunity to make that happen at Stitch Fix. And I said, okay, I'm on board. And that's, and that was that. That was that. <laughs> When was that? You you joined um, like seven or eight months into Jawbone or? Um... Yeah, that was tricky because I really enjoyed working with uh, Monica yeah. and I had a great experience at, at Jawbone. You, you know, being involved in a data space where you can see like you know people's sleeping patterns, exercise patterns, like what they eat, et cetera, et cetera, and and the kind of the, the, the quantity of the data mm. is unparalleled. Like you know, this is the kind of data that like you know research fields in you know in universities would would die for. Right. Um, and you know, here I am having it at my fingertips and it was, you know, I, I was already creating da- great data products and great data stories while I was there. So it was very hard for me to pull myself out of that. Hmm. I just, you know, just saw such a great opportunity to lead an R and D division. That I was like, I, I can't turn that down. Absolutely. That's so cool. Tell me about joining Stitch Fix. You were on that OG team with Brad Klingenberg and with, I think, Bosker Rao and Dara Sibley. Mm-hmm. And I think there was an intern also that was on your team that would end up getting hired. Um, yeah, that's right. Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas, uh, he, he was an intern. Uh, he ended up being an intern for like a year <laughs> and then he went back to school finally. And then he came back again. Um, and, and yeah, and ultimately he got hired, which is uh, great to see. He's, he's such a top notch data engineer. And then let me see. So let's see though. Uh, Eric Olson, Brad Klingenberg, Bascar Rao. Dara Sibley, Thomas, and then myself, mm. and then um, 
Oh, and then there was also uh, Kian, Kian right. uh, Mendez. He also joined about the same time. I think maybe the same day or the day after me. And then another guy named Deep Ganguly joined the week after. And then that was kind of that for a little bit. And then we saw this kind of like this in- insane growth pattern hit um, the algorithms team where we went from, you know, six people up to the 80, you know, and just short, just shy of two years, I think. That's a lot of growth for, for a data team. It's incredible. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was it that your team did at Stitch Fix? What did you focus on? Well, so my team focused on uh, the R&D component. So basically, like, really, uh, and I'll, I'll admit, in the beginning, it's like you have a vision, but the vision is the plan, and plans are never 100%, right? It's probably like 50%, maybe even 30%. Right. Um, but as long as you can get the most important elements there, then it's great. So one part of it was tech brand, right? You know, we are going to be kind of like the face of the, the data team and really kind of like, you know, surfacing incredibly interesting research projects or uh, data insights or, you know, um, data products that we could develop. Mm-hmm. And the other with that, just kind of help globally with tech brand at Stitch Fix. So I think we did a very good job of that. So like the whole blog, um, the, uh, the blog platform and so forth, that was a brainchild of myself, Eric, and a few others, and we really pieced that together and made that a reality. Um, and that worked really, really well. And then the other part uh, was really just like focusing on the R&D de- uh, development. And so what it ultimately became was that we focused a lot on natural language processing and computer vision. Okay. And the reason is, is that the other teams all had were doing a great job in what they're doing. And I would actually say that a lot of the people there were kind of on the forefront uh, the cutting edge, you know, like the demand model, like trying to predict, like, what's the demand for clothing going to be? Because inventory for clothing is complex. So, mm-hmm. like, being able to, to you know, use a, uh, a crystal ball, if you will, to be able to predict uh, demand is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and that team was doing phenomenally well. So, like, okay, you know, we don't have anything to really add to that other than maybe, like, finding an algorithm that they could use. But what we ultimately found was that nobody was really looking at a global picture of the computer vision and the natural language processing for the algorithms team. And that became a specialty. That's so cool. You must have been, I'm just curious for like personal anecdote, how, how many hours a week on average were you working during that two-year period? Because you were doing the tech brand stuff. The blog was kind of like starting to boom. And you're telling mm-hmm. the stories of like what you and the team, really what all the teams were doing. Everybody was contributing to the blog. And you, mm-hmm. were, you were also kind of like Mr. Community during that time, at least from my perspective on the outside. Like I remember... You know, you did a lot of events and talks and and kind of like getting back into this podcast today, you're getting back mm-hmm. into being like a, like more active in the community again. And you mentioned that in previous conversations that you wanted to do that. But I remember mm-hmm. that you were like, it, it almost felt like three jobs. You were like community, the storytelling side, and then um, the R&D and focus with the focus on computer vision and NLP. I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like how much were you working during that time? I was working a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 it wasn't just me though. It was also the team. Yeah. And it was also like, you know, uh, I'd say it, the ability to be able to partner with others to make things happen is really where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, I think kind of like setting the vision and the inspiration. Um, and that was a lot of focus of me to make sure that people saw that vision and they kind of worked towards it. As long as I could get that vision clearly in their view and they saw it and they got excited about it, then I didn't have to do, do any more work. Um, which was nice. Yeah. So at least for the tech planning part, for the um, for the R and D side, when I was there, I it was originally just me, right? And so I was doing a lot of, I'd say R and D in the sense of like filling in the gaps of th- certain things that people were not doing, as well as like looking for better solutions by algorithms. Mm-hmm. 
And then I became more hands-off because I had to jump into a leadership role. Um, I think, you know, being a leader and doing a lot of hands-on work is not the right thing. You should really leave that up to your ICs, the people on the team. Right. And so as my team started to grow, I started to let that go a bit and just really becoming more of a leader. And so my time became more efficient, more mm-hmm. meetings, obviously, um, mm-hmm. but definitely more efficient. And I was able to do more as well. So ultimately what happened towards the end was doing the tech brand, was doing the R&D and really kind of being, a, I'd say, you know, actively uh, plugged into the community. That came at the end. That wasn't in the beginning. It I was see. more of like R&D in the beginning for the mm-hmm. first year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly started to transform. That's a, that's very cool. What are what are the top like lesson or two that you took from Jawbone and then the top lesson or two that you took from Stitch Fix? If you could distill it to like one or two big lessons from each place. Yeah, you know, despite like all the crazy stuff that I worked on at both places, I think it was probably the thing that were most grounding and most important. Uh, one was simplicity, hmm. kind of like Occam's razor for everything. Um, so like if you can use uh, division to solve all your problems, do it. Yeah. Right? Like you don't need a fancy algorithm unless you can really find a solution for it. But I'd say, you know, the, the simpler the model, the better it tends to be, uh, more stable, more robust. And then the other is just doing, you know, get shit done. Those are just application. Um, I think those are the two most important ones. I maybe say a third one as well is, and this is one that I think that I always highlight to people that who want to get into the field of data science or even in data science today, uh, don't get caught up in, you know, having a brand new shiny tool and trying to solve a problem, right? You should really have a problem and think about how you're going to solve it. Absolutely. Uh, So having that, you know, the analogy, I think you may have already heard it is that, you know, if you get a new shiny, like gold, diamond studded hammer and you're like, boy, I really want to use this tool on something. And you see a tree and you just start hacking at the tree. That'll take you a few days to get to chop it down. Whereas if you said, Hey, I got, you know, this tree that needs to chop down. You're just going to use a buzzsaw. Right. right? And it could just be a, a cheap, dirty one. Just kind of like linear regression. It, you don't need anything fancier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll do the right thing to, to solve the problem. And that was another thing that I very much learned in terms of learn, leading the R and D division. Makes a lot of sense. Hillary Mason has a similar mindset. I think we talked about it in our last chat and she talks about CEO therapy and how her company fast forward labs, their approach is always to just like the minimum viable solution for what it is. It doesn't have to be like a lot of companies will come to her and they're like, I want neural nets. I want neural nets. Like, give me this, Mm -hmm. give me that. And she's like, no, like we can just solve this faster, cheaper and get to the solution quicker. If with just the buzzsaw, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. That's the right way forward. I think a lot of people kind of get distracted by all the shiny toys right um and the shiny toys are great it's fun um but it's really going to be you know only used for the you know the, the end of that long tail distribution mm-hmm. something you went right into working at jawbone and right into working at stitch fix and you're a very intuitive guy and i think you adapted like you know like obviously you adapted incredibly well and then you became a leader in the process too um mm-hmm. something that my buddy darren asked in our last conversation was a lot of people who are in grad school work on projects by themselves. And so mm-hmm. they're really like working by themselves. They're on an island. What do you think the ramp up is for people who are making the transition from being successful alone to working mm-hmm. with others on a shared team and on a shared code base? So really just working as a unit instead of an individual. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, is, what are the steps or like what advice do you have for those people who are coming from academia, going into industry, into tech or into data science? Yeah, well, one I would say is, um, first and foremost, have the desire. 
to work on a team. You know, some people will always be loners. And if you recognize that, come to terms with it and find roles that will allow you to be that loner and to do great things. Right. But if you're someone that who, you know, is looking to really work on a team platform because you like working in a team and so forth and have that desire, um, some great ways, open source software, you know, being plugged in with open source, working with people collectively to push forward a code base, for example, is a great way. Also, you learn not only good communication, but also better programming ethics as well. So that's another requirement if you're going to be an IC on a team, uh, the ethics, you know, the efficacy of what to do in terms of a code base, how to communicate with people across the board, you know, distributed or, you know, consolidated into one region. The other is getting involved in uh, things like Datakind. You know, um, Datakind is a great platform for where people can work together to do good, you know, for data science, uh, mm-hmm. with data science to do good for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and people work together as a team. Um, I went to... Um, one day, no two data kind of meeting. And I never got, you know, pulled in fully because just because, you know, I'm, I'm balancing between family and leading a team. But I saw what they were able to do in terms of being able to get people to work together. And I thought that was a phenomenal system. Uh, so that's a great way of doing it. I think hackathons is also a great way, but hackathons are very much kind of a one and done process. Yeah. They need to look for something that's more long term. Right. Like where people are invested in that, that tool or that project. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, that that's kind of my advice. I don't really know how else for people to get involved in more like teamwork thinking other than just having the desire. Yeah. And then just throwing themselves out there to be involved in projects that they're going to work with other people and being involved in open source projects as well. When we last talked, you mentioned um, the need to overcome imposter syndrome and to start going to start thinking as a unit as well. And is that just something that you you just kind of implement? like as a mindset, just more of the unit versus the individual. Um, you also mentioned the North Star approach too, and I thought that mm-hmm. was really unique where um, you're thinking about the North Star um, as a team and the problems you're tackling. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I thought that was very... Um, yeah, very, sure. Very so this is actually, I think this is something that's very much uh, something that was, that's implemented both at Citrus and Netflix as part of the, the culture, yeah. which is you know they want to be loosely coupled but tightly aligned. Hmm. Right. So how do you make it so that teams can be loosely coupled or people can be loosely coupled? And that is to provide a North Star for everyone needs to go. Right. Hmm. If everyone agrees on the North Star that they need to tackle, um, no matter no matter how loosely coupled teams will be, um, as long as they're aligned and in communication, uh, they'll be able to complete that objective. So, again, this could be done by saying, here's an, uh, here's a project. Here's the output. This is what we need. Right. I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. Uh, the other is more of like, you know, not only of saying like, uh, here's what we need to get to, but also kind of providing the vision for it as well. So if you can make something very concrete and almost tangible, then uh, it really helps people kind of follow the same track. Because if it's intangible or if it seems impossible, people are kind of kind of lose hope on the way. So the North Star principle, I think, is incredibly important to, to lead any team anywhere. Um, and then I wanted to go back to your other point, the other question there, which was... Um, before the North Star, what was it that you were talking about? I think you mentioned um, kind of thinking as a unit, but then also uh, overcoming imposter syndrome. Yeah, the imposter syndrome part. Yeah, that part, you know, I would say this. The imposter syndrome is a normal thing. And if you're not feeling it, then your ego is probably too big. <laughs> um, if you're feeling it, it's normal. Everyone everyone feels it. It's it's You're not going to be the, the best at everything. No one is. And we just don't have the capacity to do that. And the other is that, you know, each of us will be particularly really good at one thing and probably can do it better than anyone else that we know. Right. Um, and that's a great thing. Leverage on that. Yeah. Um, 
and accept the fact that you won't be that you, you won't be the best in everything. You won't uh, be that expert, and you should lean on your team members, right? If you can lean on someone to help you out to make a better product, rather than just you kind of just sitting in the corner and not accepting the fact that you have this imposter syndrome experience, um, you're going to suffer, you know, and your team will suffer and your company will suffer. So the quicker that you can get over the fact that you are feeling imposter syndrome, and it is actually a very real thing as well, because you are not going to be the expert in 99% of the topics, um, and just asking questions and learning your way through to get things done and being practical and not being afraid to ask, it's going to be a big win. Hmm. So right now, data science, as you know, like we all know, it's it's in such high demand. Um, there's not enough data scientists in the world, and the top companies are engaged in like cutthroat poaching and data scientist recruiting and hunting. And I was having lunch with Eric Colson um, a couple months back, and and I, I'd had lunch at Uber previously, and I'd also visited a few other companies. And I told Eric, I'm like, yeah, like I think they're targeting some of your people. And he's like, I know it. Like it's this is just like the way the game is played. And so mm -hmm. all these companies are recruiting from each other, but also they are recruiting graduates, like newly minted data scientists from boot camps, newly minted data scientists from undergrad or from master's programs like the program at Berkeley. What, I guess, with a lot of these newly minted data scientists who have not had a lot of on-the-job experience and that don't have a very diverse background, mm -hmm. how, do you, how would you advise them to go forward? Because in the past, we've talked about how it's so important for varied backgrounds to have a diverse background. Yeah. Um, well, one, there's always a company out there that will need a data scientist, regardless of your background. If you have a good, good enough technical skills, mm -hmm. you will be able to find a role somewhere. And the other is um, in terms of like, what else can you do? Maybe you should do internships, um, for example. So I actually would strongly advise if someone's a grad student mm -hmm. um, and they still got a few years in their PhD, Definitely, definitely, most definitely do internships yeah. um, at, at, at the bigger companies um, or even the small startups, too. Uh, I'd say it works at both places. You don't have to be at a big company. So, for example, uh, Thomas, who started out as an intern, mm -hmm. um, we also had another person who interned from the same university, which is the University of Waterloo. They have a phenomenal internship program for um, their students. And despite the students coming to us young in age, um, they came to us relatively mature in terms of industry, hmm. you know, for someone who's fresh from school and they're not even graduated yet. These are phenomenal interns. And then by the time they graduate, you know, like Thomas, for example, I think he probably has like two or three years of industry experience under his belt before he, he graduated. And that's not master's level. I think that was just a uh, bachelor's. It could be master's, but it's definitely not PhD. Mm -hmm. He has a huge leg up. Like if I were to like, Look at, you know, let's say a master's student or even a bachelor's student who's had, you know, several years of uh, industry experience, as well as being strong technically, I'd probably pick that over someone uh, versus someone who's a fresh PhD with zero internship experience, hmm. just because they know the lay the layout of industry, what to expect, how to communicate, how to partner, right, right as well as being technical. In, 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 in advising people to go for internships, do you have any advice for practical application in terms of getting your foot in the door at the top companies and places that they have in mind? So <clears throat> I've advised some friends who have gone through boot camps to take the approach of, you know, like really do your research, look at the open source tools that the team is using, um, find out like a good example, Jonathan Mora, uh, Jonathan Mora talked about Valpal Rabbit. I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, mm -hmm. at eHarmony, which is one of their open source projects that like, they created, and they use that. So getting familiar with the tools that that company uses, doing the research, 
I think that gives you a leg up. But then I also think it's good to approach conversations with recruiters or maybe even skip around recruiters and try to have coffee with the managers if you can. And just, you know, yep. be, be, and just ask them point blank, like, what is your cost of acquisition? What is your cost to acquire a data scientist? Do you know that number? And oftentimes, mm -hmm. from what I've heard, it's between 25 and 45K in terms of recruiting fees, meetup sponsorship, conference sponsorship, just to like find and hire and put them through the, you know, the vetting process. I feel like, you know, 25 to 45K to acquire a good data scientist is, is kind of a lot of money, <laughs> number one. Mm -hmm. And then number two, if, if they can hire you as an intern for two or three months and you can add value during that time and wor while working for much less, and at the end of that, you can either join on full time or at least have gained some experience. I feel like that's a win-win for both parties, but I'm like super practical. Like I always approach problems like this in this practical way and just get right to the heart of things. And a lot of people coming from academia won't ask those questions. Like, what is your cost of acquisition? You know, like, mm -hmm. do you have internships available? Um, I've done extensive research on your tools and I've actually done some open source work, you know, on this, on this tool. Um, what do you recommend? in terms of how to how to get the foot in the door? Uh, first and foremost, and I tell this to everyone, including like when people are coming to interview for a role on my team, be yourself. Just be right? yourself. Um, yeah, just be yourself. Don't be anyone else. Um, it's, it's when you're trying to be someone else that you're not, it's like running VMware and then like expecting <laughs> the operating system to be like fully like operating as usual. And it's yeah. not, it's going to be a restrained resource. Right. Um, and then also like if you do get through the door and you do join a company and you're not being yourself, you're only going to set everybody up for uh, disappointment. Um, and it'll not only hurt you, it'll also hurt, you know, your team members and the company as well. So usually it won't be a win-win situation. Uh, so, you know, being candid, being honest, and really setting the right expectations to the people and being honest with them, you know, doing when you're chatting with them, just say, hey, I love, you know, what your company's doing. Uh, you know, are you guys looking for an intern? Um, if not, you know, what else are you looking for? That kind of thing. And just to see if there happens to be a click in terms of what they need sure. and what you have to offer. Right. Yeah. Um, I think interviewing for any company, even regardless of the size, for the most part, not every company is like this, but I'd say regardless for the size, you know, an interview process is not about meeting some like. Uh, GRE score or something like that. It's more about does this person have the right skills that we need, mm -hmm. right? Like if I had someone who was interviewing for a role on my team that who's like the world's best neural net person, I probably wouldn't hire him. No, actually, I probably would not hire him just because he, his skill sets would be so specific to what he's doing that there's probably going to be little or zero, um, I'd say, you know, uh, overlap between what he has to offer and what my team needs mm -hmm. uh, and what, you know, the company needs from my team. Um, I'm not, I'm just not going to hire that person. So it's, it's kind of that need. So one is like, don't ever take it personally when you're chatting with people and they say, no, I'm not looking for that. Or like, you know, I'm not interested. It just means that they don't need a person like you, but there is definitely a company out there that definitely needs a person like that, like you to fill in, you know, their need. Sure. Um, and it's identifying that. So yeah. it's being, you know, honest and just asking the right questions of like, Hey, you know, what are you looking for? And then, you know, be able to surface that if that's what sounds like you, you should tell them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really great way of soliciting as well as communicating with people saying, hey, I think you're the right person you're looking for. Absolutely. And I, I totally resonate with your advice from earlier that if you have one or two internships, like if you've interned at Stitch Fix for three to six months, like you have mm -hmm. such a you have such a leg up over somebody else who graduates from a program that has had no mm -hmm. industry experience. It's yeah, just, I totally it's, agree. yeah. Well, thank you for that advice, Eli. That's 
that'll help a lot of the newly minted data scientists in the world coming out of boot camps, coming out of undergraduate degrees, coming out of master's degrees. I think that advice would will help all of them. And mm -hmm. yeah, and also I think the other thing, just kind of like just kind of like uh, to rehash a bit again, they need to make sure that they're themselves, right? If they're not, it's really going to hurt them and the other person. And you know, the more who, the more that you play up your strengths and someone recognizes you for their strengths that you're good at, uh, the happier you're going to be in that role if you actually get that role. It makes a lot so. of sense. I guess, I guess I'd love to chat about those questions that you ask. So like the unorthodox Eli Bressert questions, or actually maybe we should rewind back mm -hmm. to what your team at Netflix does. Um, sure. Yeah. So what is the name of your team and what does your team do at Netflix? Yeah, so my team um, is called Growth and Messaging Analytics or Data Engineering Analytics. Um, and we're a, a team of about eight people that who uh, focus on data engineering solutions and analytic solutions on anything that is associated with acquisition. So like, you know, we are now open to the rest of the world and working very closely with uh, researchers and other data scientists and product managers and execs uh, to think about how can we grow to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very exciting opportunity. I mean, also, you know, we're not only a product company anymore, we're also a content company. We generate content, we make um, films um, and TV shows and series. And so it's all extremely exciting, um, but we have to think about it, like how can we do that in terms of helping acquisition for the rest of the world? Hmm. Um, when we opened the floodgates back in 2016 to say, okay, well, we're ready to, you know, pretty much surface anywhere that we can. Um, we knew that we we're taking on a big challenge. You know, it wasn't just, just the fact that, you know, we could surface the exact same Netflix product to, every single country, we knew that there was going to be resistance in some countries due to cultural expectations. Some countries may not have even heard of Netflix. And, you know, like if I saw like some company saying, Hey, we got the greatest product on this. I'm like, I've never heard of you. Why am I going to sign up? Mm -hmm. You know, we need to think about how we can do better in terms of helping them, um, you know, trust Netflix and join us as well. But that part, the other part is messaging. So messaging is very much focused on the realm of how can we message with members and non-members? And that's through the channels of uh, email, text messages, uh, push notification on the phone, for example. And we really like to be respectful of like what people want to see and what they don't want to see. Uh, we don't want to be kind of like that messaging spammer. So we, we do we work very hard to make sure that we're messaging just right as well. Hmm. And so my team, Growth and Messaging Analytics, is a bit of a misnomer. I call it Gamma for short, by the way. So if you hear me say Gamma, gamma. then you know what I'm, yeah. That's cool. Uh, like the Gamma function. <laughs> um, then uh, we also work on a few other things. Uh, we are also responsible for um, a lot of tooling around something called consolidated logging, which is our consolidated um, data engineering solution to all UI logging. So, um, you know, we are on many different types of platforms for Netflix experience and logging for every different UI is going to be fairly complicated. And we want to make sure that we have some consistency. Yeah. So it's a, it's a joint operation between many different partners within Netflix to make it a reality. It's not an easy solution, but we re we're responsible for the consumption and putting it in good data formats as well as providing good tools to access that data. I see. Um, for the for the lay audience, or just or just in general, to clarify that for the UIs, mm -hmm. I think I've noticed that where I've been watching it on like an older model television at a mm -hmm. friend's house and the UI looks very different than like a very modern television or very different than what's um, displayed on my laptop mm -hmm. um, or very different than what's displayed on just like, let's say an iPad. Yeah. Um, so, so that the, there are all of these different UIs for different pieces of hardware. Is that correct? Yeah. 
Oh. Uh, I, I would say, I, yeah, for the different pieces of hardware, um, it could be through the browser, it could be through an app, right? Oh, it could be on the app on your Android right. um, phone or your iOS phone, yep. um, or even an app on a smart TV or a game console, mm-hmm. right? So it's just all these different platforms. Uh, they have different ways of expressing the UI experience to the member, yep. and we're optimizing it for that platform, right? We're not going to just try and make a platform consistent between all of them and making everybody suffer because of it. We really want to, you know, make that platform optimized for every single system. Um, so mm-hmm. we want to make sure that, you know, it's it's easy for us to be uh, consuming that logging and make it into a consistent format that everybody can uh, look across the board. Gotcha. I'm imagining that there are like PMs for each of those platforms, and then you're collecting data from each one. Uh, let's see. Uh, it would actually be, uh, it's more just, it's, yeah, there's PMs for different platforms, but we actually have a lot of different PMs in a different, I'd say different verticals, okay. if you think about it. So like you have PMs for, uh, let's say like TV hardware or TV partnership, and then you have PMs for product, you have PMs for algorithms. So they will all interact with consolidated logging in one way, one fashion or another. Very cool. Very cool. Nice. And you guys do non-member A-B testing, right? We do a large chunk of non-member A-B testing. Yeah. So we have a great platform uh, called Ignite um, mm-hmm. that was developed by some really smart people here. And it allows us to essentially set up A-B tests and to kind of check in on A-B tests as they're processing uh, to see how things are looking. You know, like if, if there's login that's missing, we can say, hey, you know, somewhere upstream, like something's going on, can we fix it? Uh, so it's a very transparent system. So there's two different teams that take care of A-B testing on Ignite. There's one uh, called member testing, and then mine is non-member testing. Cool. And uh, the Gamma team, they, they don't do predictions for production, but you do make a lot of internal predictions. Can you give a few examples of those? Sure. So I would, I would actually correct a little bit. Uh, I would clarify on that. So we don't do internal predictions. What we do is we do internal insights. Oh, I so see. what we're looking at is like, we're, you know, we have a lot of data. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's on the order of many, many petabytes. And we want to maybe find, you know, insights of like providing us the right direction for a product. Uh, let's say like, you know, for the rest of the world, what should we be doing? What, tar- uh, what countries should we be targeting? Or what should we be doing for different countries in terms of acquisition? Um, or for messaging, um, also for localization, like things associated with localization. We're also involved with downloads. And so we're thinking about like, how can we, you know, what do we see in the user patterns today? What are people doing with the product? How are they interacting with it? Where do we see uh, issues coming up or friction? Um, and how can we act on that? And, you know, we have, you know, 90 plus million subscribers today. So we have a lot of data and a lot of interaction. And so we look for that and we look for those types of insights. Now, we work very closely with another uh, organization in uh, Netflix called Science and Algorithms, and that's the people that who are focusing on predictions, uh, the nuances of A-B testing, as well as a lot of the researchers. I'd say the, the more researchy type things in terms of data science. We work together in conjunction to really push forward product, and, but it's not just us and it's not just them. It's both of us working very closely together along with the, the PMs and everyone, the UI engineers and all the other engineers make things work nicely. Yeah. Are, um, is Gamma hiring? Are you hiring new Gamma members? <laughs> I love the acronym Gamma, by the way. Yeah, thank you. I love the Gamma function. So I was <laughs> like, this is perfect. Now I can finally name that. Nice. Um, so yes, we are hiring. So we just hired um, a, uh, a data analyst uh, to join our team. And now we're focusing on hiring a data engineer. So we're looking for someone to really work closely with us on the consolidated login platform. Um, so someone who's got a bit of a software engineering background uh, but has the love and thirst for data as well as Netflix product. Yeah. If anyone has those right skill sets, please reach out to me. You hear that audience? Please reach out to Eli or tweet at him. 
What's your Twitter yeah, handle? Astrobiased. Uh, Astrobiased. That's right. Yeah. Um, so tweet at Eli at Astrobiased um, if you'd like to apply for that gig or email yeah. him. That's fine too. Um, cool. You have an awesome four tiered interview process or like the four tiered question you called it when we last chatted, yeah. which yeah. is, which has evolved from several like hundred interviews at stitch fix that you conducted and then hundreds of interviews at Netflix. And you've iterated this mm -hmm. on this over time. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your interview process and, um, some of the examples of the Eli, um, unorthodox questions? Sure. Well, so this actually, so I'll, I, I'd like to give this as a uh, Clinton's actually, it goes back to Jawbone. Okay. Um, so someone interviewed me for when I was interviewing at Jawbone, this question, and I just took it and I really made it far more complex at uh, the different tiers, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I want to give credit back to Jawbone for it. But it was a, a great question where you're basically looking for a great planet um, to uh, do like a, a music video. Um, and the, the, the backdrop is this. Uh, you work for a producer, and uh, your producer's arch nemesis has constructed the the you know the next biggest Gangnam style video that's gone viral across the galaxy. This is far <laughs> in the future, um, so you already get you know people raising their eyebrows like, "Whoa, what's going on? Am I reading this right?" <laughs> um, so I want to see how they're you know dealing with something that's a little bit quirky and, and out of the out of the picture, um, and I want to see you know if it's someone who's more of a data engineer, then we can tear it, we can make it a little bit more focused on like. How would they parse that kind of data? How would they hit an API and you know write a good Python or Java um, script to uh, tackle it? Mm -hmm. And then uh, if they can tackle it and parse the data in, um, that's great. No limitations. We don't care about timing or anything like that. Once they're able to solve for that, and so the objective is really to look for in the galaxy uh, the best planet to do your producer's viral video or the one that he wants to make viral. So he's looking for the right planet with the right environment to make that video just pop out and, you know, destroy your producer's arch nemesis video in every way and every record. Mm -hmm. And so that's tier one in just terms of acquiring the data. Tier two is like you get some more boundary conditions on if, again, this is like if it's a data engineer or a data scientist on, okay, you got some restrictions. How would you speed up the algorithm? You know, just the normal types of questions. Tier three gets a little bit interesting, which is that now you have to not only have these boundary conditions, but you also want to start thinking about edge cases. Like, what 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 kind of algorithm would you do to basically look at a planet and try and figure out where on the planet would be the best viral location? And let's assume that it has different types of distributions, mm. right? And if it has a Gaussian distribution in terms of like, you know, at some peak somewhere, let's say that you can only request, you know, 20 times per galaxy and, you know, you have longitude and latitude, that's a lot of different coordinates that you can hit. What would be the best optimal path for querying something that has a Gaussian-like distribution on a sphere? And so, you know, converting from... If you do a random, so here's two parts. The, the first part that most people actually overlook is that when you do a, what you think is a uniform distribution or uniform sampling mm -hmm. um, on a sphere, it's actually not uniform. That's in Cartesian coordinates. So if you mm -hmm. do a uniform sampling of a Cartesian plane, it's always going to be uniform. But if you apply that and you convert it to a sphere, the sampling gets biased towards the poles. And so, and so most people don't catch that, but I want them to kind of, uh, potentially realize it and if they don't I'll point it out to them and I'll be like how would you convert how would you resample such that you can now sample the sphere uniformly and so you have to look online so I, I give them a laptop and everything I say you can look at any type of resource that you want um, why don't you look online to see if you can find something that corrects 
for this sampling on the polls. And so I just want to see how resourceful they are as a data scientist. Um, and I'll nudge them in the right way if they need it. And eventually we'll land onto some equations. And I want to see how they're going to convert the equations from you know, the website to real code. Mm-hmm. I want to see if they have the ability of being able to translate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I'd say, the tier three part where most people get, I'd say most people stop at tier two. That's the 50 percentile. Tier three is like 80 percentile. Tier four is when we throw in the distribution saying, okay, now you can only sample each planet 50 times. Imagine that you have a Gaussian-like distribution on the sphere. Mm -hmm. Uh, How would you optimally sample on the sphere? This is all done in about an hour's time. Wow. And so I don't expect (laughs) anyone to get to tier four, but I did have one person. Didn't complete tier four though, but got pretty close. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was out of, you know, several hundred people that I've interviewed on that role. Yeah. So I don't ask the question anymore. So... If you're interviewing for my team, you're not going to get that question. Got it. But you ask probably similar questions in a way that, to test the tiers, right? Of course. Yeah. So I like doing tiered interviews. That's very cool. And I, I guess in that situation, only a cosmologist would really know the answer of tier four or have the ability to yeah, potentially. Someone, that's true. Anyone that, who deals with Gaussians, um, a cosmologist could do it. A geophysicist that who thinks about uh, distributions on a sphere yeah. would also Probably would probably be aware of how to approach it, mm-hmm. um, or people that who are just very good at, I'd say, distribution sampling. So mm-hmm. people in statistics that who are just very aware of the nuances of like, you know, what are you sampling from? Yeah. You know, is it a plane? Is it a sphere? What type of uh, dimensionality are you dealing with? They'll they'll probably pick up on that pretty quick. And what are you gauging in tier four? Like, what is what are the main? It's it's almost like soft skills or something like about character, um, and the way like- they work. The way they work. That's right. I don't want, I want to see how people respond when they're given the impossible. Mm. Uh, you know, I want, I want people to say, you know, that's a really hard question. I, the, the, the person who got up to tier four, she just kind of laughed, like, but like in a funny way. <laughs> and she's like, oh, wow, this is going to be insanely hard because I don't think I can promise that I can get you an answer on this one. And she goes, but I'll give my best shot. And that's the attitude I'm looking for. Yeah. Right. You know, when you have people on your team and they're kind of facing the impossible sometimes, you know, when you have a fire drill with a project, uh, you want to see how they can kind of deal with being given the impossible task. Do they get frustrated? and Or do are they still happy and they laugh at it? How do they deal with the kind of stress that comes through that? Um, and that's very much the soft skill that I'm looking for in tier four. I love that. That's like This is like the Vince Lombardi approach to finding out data scientist character or something. I don't know. It's just so cool. It's such a great way to interview. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the other thing that I really like making my interviews fun, Yeah, um, if it's if it's if it's too stressful or you know people are just starting to shut down, I always will change the environment of the interview just because interviewing is not about like you know life or death situation at all. It's just like if you it, it, it may be that you can work in that company or not and it's the right fit. Right. Um, I like making those interview experiences also a positive one if it doesn't work out. That's great. So if if someone is running into the wall, you know sometimes we'll go out for a walk just to kind of lighten up the mood. And it doesn't mean that like the interview process ended there. It's just more that. I know they have another interview after this and I want them to be kind of set and ready for the next interview rather than being frozen for the rest of the day. That makes sense. That's really kind of you and like thoughtful. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would say it's, it's seemingly kind, but it's also, I'd say also seemingly very selfish because I want them to be able to perform for the next round of interviews and make sure that we can see the best self from them. Right. If they're kind of frozen up, then it was a waste of time for everybody mm-hmm. because they couldn't like, you know, um, unravel mm-hmm. from all that tension. And it's really important for them and for me to make sure that we're doing something that's worthwhile for both parties. And so my selfish part is that I want to make sure that they're going to be more calm and more focused for the next part of their interview. Absolutely. 
that there's a, that's an example of empathy in data science right there, just in the interview process. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but it is for the best it's for, it's for both reasons, right? It's for, um, you also don't want to demoralize someone so that they like, <laughs> let's say they do, they don't make it through the Netflix interviews and they go on to the next company and then they're just, they're just a basket case after that. It's, it's awesome that you make yeah. it fun, you know, that you make it really fun and challenging at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's pretty important. I've heard stories of people going into some interviews where they're just like whiteboarding for like three hours in a row and it's just mm -hmm. really intense and almost not very practical either. Like they're like, it's, it's, it's just hard to understand what they're gauging with certain kinds of interviews where like, is it just a technical test? Like, I feel like in tier one, you've already, they've already passed the technical test or at least mm -hmm. in, in tier one and tier two, they've passed the technical test. And then in tier threes and four, you're starting to gauge them on, t on, on the other attributes that would make them a good fit for your team, which I think mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's really, right. that's really cool. Um, there, there are some data science skills that are really hard to quantify, like some of the soft skills. And I think this interview, um, line of thought kind of touches on that. Are there any specific soft skills that you think make for a great data scientist? You know, to be honest, I think technical and soft skills will, some of those skills will be really important for one role and it will be very important for another role. I don't think there's any general soft skill that's going to work across the board for everything. Okay. I think at maybe bare minimum, there could be some generality. But in terms of like really strong skill sets, it's going to be different from one role to another. So at bare minimum, got to communicate, right? If Albert Einstein could not write or communicate his thoughts to others, then we would have not known general relativity, at least from him, yeah. right? Um, it was his ability to be able to communicate, write that down, and share it with the world. Mm -hmm. That's what made the difference. Um, in that same respect, that's what we need from a data scientist. So that bare minimum, at least some communication skills is needed. Um, another that always helps is some level of empathy, understanding what the other person is looking for. Because mm -hmm. as a data scientist, you're working as someone who's not technical or a data engineer or an analyst, as someone who's, you know, you're partnering with a lot of people who are not going to be as technically savvy as you, uh, but you need to make them feel that they have high confidence in what you do, as well as that they understand what you're doing. If you're telling them something and they don't understand what you're doing, I think you've lost an opportunity, right? So being able to, con to convey complex thoughts and distill it down to, you know, your partners in the right way is a very powerful skill. And that is, I say, a hard skill. Like, it's not even a, a soft skill. I'd actually say it's a hard skill. Mm. Um, and it's one that's very much needed. If someone is very strong in that, that's very, very powerful. So it's something that's, you know, a combination of empathy and understanding of how to communicate, you know, technical thoughts or technical works to someone who's not going to be a technical. So that's another skill. I'd say the other one is not only in terms of like being able to communicate, but also knowing when and how to communicate, when to set the expectations with partners. This is the, the teamwork part. If you don't set the right expectations with your partners and say, hey, yeah, I'm going to be done next week, but it really takes two weeks or three months, it's going to be frustrating for everybody on, across the board. Um, so being able to you know really signal the right expectations and give people the right mindset of like how what they should be expecting from you and w when they should be ready to move on something yeah it's very important i think those are kind of the ones that are first and foremost for me uh another soft skill that i think is also really uh i'd say powerful is um i'd say knowing when to ask questions right it's it's well actually i would say always ask questions i wouldn't say when i said mm -hmm. always if you have a question and you don't know the answer and you, you know that you can't find it an email or something like that, and it's going to take you more than 20 minutes, get up, go ask someone. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to spend more than 20 minutes, you're wasting not only your time, but your company's time as well. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. 
Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I think I'm going to keep it down to like maybe two more questions and then the rapid fire uh, section mm -hmm. where we get into your, your life's purpose, um, which mm -hmm. you have an awesome vision for. And I'm, I'm excited for you to talk about that. Um, okay. But before that, I'd love to hear about really like some of the general advice you have for people embarking on a data science career or growing as a data scientist, specifically what you learned from Eric Colson about being a leaf in the river. Yeah, yeah, I'd definitely be happy to, to jump in on that one. So, you know, first and foremost, I'd say when you want to get into the data science world and it seems challenging, don't give up because there'll always be something out there for you. Like the need for data science is just so extreme. Hmm. So don't give up and, you know, set yourself for, you know, that there are going to be a lot of disappointments, but don't let it bog you down and learn from it. Um, and then the other is that, you know, data science is such a blossoming field where opportunities will open up that you didn't plan on. And this is the, the leaf in the river part that I got from Eric, which is, you know, you are going down a river and you kind of have a general sense of the path that you're following, but you don't necessarily um, say, know exactly we're going to end up in the river. And you're kind of like a leaf. And so when a great opportunity is knocking at your door, don't just say no. Think about it. Seriously consider it and see where it could potentially bring you to in the future. Hmm. If it's something that's unexpected, maybe it's not a data science role. Maybe it's a data engineer role or maybe it's an analytics role. Don't just say no. It could actually be something that could provide you some great opportunity that you weren't aware of before. And and take it up if you think that it's something that you have a passion about. And it can also make you down in the direction that you want, but it won't exactly get you where you want to be. In your views of what data science is, going from a fledgling to someone who's deep into it, it's going to change. Uh, you'll see data science very different. It's like when you were in high school and you looked at college. You know, college looked very different to you when you're versus high school. Or when you were in college and you were thinking about grad school, when you were deep in the next of grad school, your view of what grad school was, the program, the PhD, masters, all of that, it's very different than what you saw when you were in college. Your perspectives will change over time. So you should be very, very recipient and be willing to change your viewpoints and your direction as you move forward. Can you tell me a little bit about your mentorship work at Singularity U? And, sure. And specifically... Um, the advice that you give to young founders and early stage startups who want to implement data science at their company or who want to start thinking about data science and how do you guide them? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so in terms of, you know, young startups, a lot of startups, you know, if the people are not technically inclined, the, 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 I'd say the, the black box of data science seems like some type of like magic pixie dust that you can kind of sprinkle over something and it just, everything turns into gold. Yeah. Um, and that's not true. It's, it's really just about being smart and converting data into impact if it's good data. And this is where the mistake is. Even if a, a, a CEO of a young startup is, uh, or founder is, is, is technical, is that having the good data from the get-go, if your product will be driven by data, is an absolute must. Um, you, can't, you can't fabricate data, right? right? So like, if you miss the opportunity to take that data, store it in a meaningful fashion, uh, it's going to be forever lost. And so if you're in a situation where you're ready to start logging data, uh, you know, act on it earlier than later. And you don't need a big data solution, probably. I'd say 99% of the company don't need a big data solution at a startup stage. I'd say 99.9%. Most of them, you can just use a small SQL database to store your data, and it's enough. Um, but just start storing it. And um, you know, have someone advise you from a data engineering perspective, like, what's the do's and don'ts? Um, you know, just storing it as... Any format that you think could be a big mistake because you could be dutiful in terms of storing it, but then maybe you're storing the wrong data or the wrong type. 
and then you can't do any data science on top of that either. Right. Um, so I'm just getting a little bit of advice from a data engineer or a data scientist of like how to answer your critical business critical question that you want to work on eventually in six months, year, two years time. It's really important. Hmm. I know we don't have much time, so let's jump into rapid fire interview zone. We have like four minutes or so, um, okay. or, or maybe less than that. Um, well, let's jump right into um, your life's purpose. Um, mm -hmm. So when I was talking with Andreas Mueller, he talked about democratizing machine learning as one of his biggest mm -hmm. like motivators in life. And then he's very passionate about software carpentry. Um, what What is your life purpose? I say my life purpose is something that's been building uh, mentally for me quite in quite some time, which is, you know, I want to I've been slowly working towards this, which is, you know, finding a way to help humanity move to the next level. And it's not just going to be me. It's going to be a collection of many bright minds that's going to push this forward, which is that, you know, as a civilization or what, what makes a civilization different from, let's just say, like an individual human or a group of people compared to an individual human. The knowledge that one individual um, collects over time, if they have no way of communicating with others, will pass away with them. Hmm. Right. And that that's in very much a way, I'd say a sadness. Right. We, we've lost all those things that that one person has learned. But thankfully, you know, we've uh, learned to grunt, point at a saber tooth and say, don't touch the saber tooth, otherwise you'll die. Um, so, you know, some knowledge was going from one individual to a group. And then, you know, we got into uh, writing on the walls of caves and then, you know, to more uh, technical writing as we see it today. And it's really now been able to take a collection of experiences and really introducing philosophies, uh, ideas, knowledges that are no longer in I'd say, uh, you cannot encompass in one individual uh, that can now sit as a layer of knowledge on top of humanity, right? So like quantum mechanics, data science, uh, literature, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And it's now has kind of a, I'd say an almost an immortal presence within humanity and it's really important and it's growing. But the problem now today is that we have so much knowledge that for us to be able to pick up on that knowledge, it's going to be incredibly difficult. And we're going to be surpassed at some point in terms of like what machines can do versus what we can do. Right. Um, and so we need to find a way of being able to kind of level ourselves up. And I think one way of doing that is not only thinking about knowledge, but also thinking about experience, right? Now we're able to grab as much knowledge as we can if someone's dutiful in terms of sharing what they've learned, but we don't actually kind of really record their experience of, of life. Yeah. Um, you know, Someone that who is really good at a certain sport, it's going to be hard for them to dictate like what are the things about that sport is works in this way or that way. So let's say like the world's best surfer, Kelly Slater, um, he understands surfing in a way that a lot of other people don't. If he were to pass away and we were not able to capture his experiences, kind of uh, instinct knowledge of surfing, it's going to go with him. Um, and that's a big loss for humanity in terms of the surfing world. Um, and so it'd be great if we can find a way of capturing that. Hmm. that experience and we're not there yet but ray kurzweil predicts that in about 50 years time 50 to 100 years computers will be ready to to kind of uh i'd say almost do like a human snapshot of the human mind and being able to put it onto a computer system um and i think that will be the path forward for us taking human knowledge and being able to transpose some of that information into another person yeah right so not like you know what makes let's say kelly slater and i turn into kelly slater but more about like rather than me having to go through the ropes of learning all that experience, um, at least I can start getting some of the nuances of surfing from him at, at, you know, as an experience. And if we take that and level up our humanity, I think that's really going to push us forward. That's, that's a beautiful vision. I, and you're actively like monitoring technology and where it's at 
so that you can eventually start to execute on that vision. We're not there mm -hmm. yet. I guess we're um, 10 to 50 years away from machines being that powerful, depending on how yeah. fast things advance. But wow, that's that's super cool. <laughs> It'll be there. Like people think it's a crazy idea, but if you think about like uh, if you think a hundred years back and you said, "Hey, you got a uh, a, a smartphone, right? Like an iPhone." Yeah. People would be like, "That's nuts. Never gonna happen." Right. right? And when you think about like what people are thinking about, like what's gonna happen in the future, they had no idea that quantum, quantum mechanics was gonna take over and really, you know, change the world as we see it today. Or cloud services. Um, or, you know, uh, I'd say 200 years ago, flying into space, people thought that would never happen. And now we're getting, you know, we have had a whole bunch of missions to Mars, not humans yet, mm -hmm. but we're getting there. It's just that when we think about, the, you know, back then what people were expecting, in many ways, we've superseded what they expected. And that supersession will only increase as technology increases. The, the pace of technological advances really increases every 10 years, like significantly. It's kind of doubling in every format. Yeah. And that's something that Ray Kurzweil also talks about. Final question: What is what is the, your favorite book that you gift that you gift to others that you give as a gift? Um, favorite book or favorite blog or um, podcast? Do you One have of my favorite books actually is um, "You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman," or "You're Surely Joking, Mr. Feynman." Um, I, I've given that book out to tens of people uh, just because Mr. Uh, this is uh, Feynman, the physicist uh, who got a Nobel Prize for uh, quantum chromodynamics. Um, he it's just, he's such a funny individual. Um, and he would have definitely passed my four tier interview in the sense of just like kind of laughing at it. Um, where, you know, given impossibly hard situations, he always kind of laughed at it and just enjoyed doing it. He found a passion and never got himself locked into the dredges of it, which is really just tinkering with it until he found a solution. Hmm. Um, he was very creative. Uh, he was a visionary in many ways. And, you know, when he passed, uh, I'd say that he, the world lost a very great individual. And, and again, it's just that concept that I would love to be able to pull more of who he was and share it with the world than just, the, you know, the knowledge that he shared in terms of a book or, uh, you know, how to do quantum mechanics or physics. But it's just, you know, that individual to me speaks many things that I think is a great way to live. Hmm. You know, just having fun and really just living life in a more, I'd say, happy manner. It doesn't need to be all, all the time serious. So, yeah, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. It's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it, I definitely would. I'll read it for sure. <laughs> I've got okay. th I got three books that I'm going through right now, but um, hopefully next month. You're surely joking, Mr. Feynman. Yeah. Thank you, Eli. This this interview is so much fun, and I'm sorry that you're two minutes late to your to your next meeting, or it might be three minutes late now. So, um, no is worries. There, is there anything that you want to leave the audience with, or is any anything you'd like to sign off with? Um. No, I think that's it. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you're getting into data science, just have fun. Um, don't get too serious about it. It's, it's, you know, I think the art of enjoying what you do, having a desire and really having fun with what you do is it's really going to make you stand out as a great data scientist or a data engineer or analyst. So just continue doing that. As long as you're doing what you enjoy, you're on the right path. Thank you, Eli. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.